Hi everybody, I am John Allen and this is Last Week in the Church. Here's what we've got on the show today. The ball is in the Vatican's court, literally. T minus seven to the Pope in Iraq, a tale of white hats and red ink. Does Super Mario have a Pell problem? And finally, the Pope comes calling. That's what's waiting for you on the other side, so please stick around. All right, thanks for being with us. Uh, I want to remind you, you can find full coverage of all the stories we are going to be talking about today on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com. Once again, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic commentary. We're in the middle of our annual fund drive. If you can support us, uh, we are particularly interested in people willing to make a small but stable monthly contribution. That gives us the ability to plan, to make projections, We're not looking for very much. Maybe what you spend in a cup of coffee this month or streaming a movie from Netflix or something like that. Whatever it is, we would be very grateful. All right, we begin today with the ball being in the Vatican's court. And when I say court, I mean that literally. Uh, Because you may not know this, but the Vatican actually has its own criminal justice system. And it it has its own criminal courts. And uh, that court is currently hearing a fairly unusual sexual abuse case. It involves uh, a pre-seminary on Vatican grounds, the pre-seminary of St. Pius X. Now, a pre-seminary is a place where young men, usually we're talking junior high or high school age, who think they might be interested in a vocation to the priesthood. It's a place they can go uh, not only to get a decent education, but also to get spiritual formation and to kind of discern where they think God is calling them. Uh, This particular pre-seminary was founded in 1956 under Pope Pius XII. Over the years, it's produced about 200 vocations to the priesthood. The criminal trial that's going on right now involves a charge that between the years of 2007 and 2012, One seminarian at this place, uh, who is today a priest by the name of Father Gabriele Martinelli, that he sexually abused another seminarian who has been identified only by the initials LG while they were both minors. Basically, LG was about a year younger uh, than Martinelli. Uh, The suggestion is that Martinelli was kind of a a big dog uh, at this pre-seminary and abused his authority uh, to, to sexually abuse this younger, slightly younger uh, pre-seminarian. Uh, now, this case has been rolling through the Vatican's judicial system since 2019. Uh, it, it became public knowledge in 2017 when an Italian journalist by the name of Gianluigi Nuzzi published a book called, of all things, Original Sin, uh, in which, among other things, he quoted from a letter denouncing uh, this abuse that was written by another uh, alumnus of this pre-seminary. And we've heard from all sorts of people. This week, we heard from four witnesses that were called by the prosecution, by the Vatican's promoter of justice. So in other words, these are people who were called to bolster the accusation that this Father Martinelli, while he was a pre-seminarian, was guilty of sexual abuse. Now, they had various things to say. You can find the full breakdown out of on, on Crux, but here's the relevant point for our purposes. Three of the four said 
that Italian Cardinal Angelo Comastri, who at the time was the archpriest of St. Peter's Basilica, and that's important because this priest seminary supplied all the altar boys for liturgies at St. Peter's Basilica, so there was a very close relationship between the priest seminary and the basilica. So these three witnesses said that during the time Camastri was in charge of St. Peter's Basilica, he had been informed of these charges of sexual abuse and didn't do anything about it. Uh, now, uh, Comastri last Saturday was removed from his job by Pope Francis. Now, he's 77. You could explain that. It's just, you know, he hit the normal retirement age of 75. He was given a couple of years as a grace period, and then, you know, uh, a successor was named. It, it does seem a little odd, however, that that decision was implemented four days before these witnesses were set to testify in a trial in which they asserted that Camastri knew about this abuse and didn't act. Now, the importance of all that is this, and here's why the ball is literally in the Vatican's court. Up to this point, the perception of the Vatican's criminal justice system is basically that what it does is it looks for lay people or for small fry among the clergy to take the fall for anything that goes wrong. And it insulates higher ups, most especially cardinals, from any kind of liability. I mean, just to remind you of how this works, uh, three years ago, uh, another trial worked its way through the Vatican legal system involving a charge that the president of a papal hospital had illegally used money to refurbish the apartment uh, of a Vatican cardinal, a guy by the name of Tarsicio Bertone, who is the Secretary of State, the number two guy under Pope Benedict XVI. Now, in that trial, the, the, the lay president of the hospital, of uh, the foundation governing the hospital, a guy by the name of Giuseppe Profitti, he was indicted and convicted. Cardinal Bertoni not only was never invited, even though he was the beneficiary of the alleged illegal uh, diversion of funds, he was never even called as a witness, okay? And, and that sort of thing has led a lot of people to believe that the whole point of this system is to make sure that the higher-ups never take the fall. Now, here you have a case in which three different witnesses called by the prosecution have said that a cardinal was aware of the alleged illegal acts and yet didn't do anything about it. Question, is the Vatican going to launch an investigation? Uh, a, not, and not a canonical investigation, bear in mind, that could lead to him being defrocked or something, but a criminal investigation because these crimes allegedly took place on Vatican territory. They are the only competent court. Uh, are they going to launch a criminal investigation, and will there eventually be a criminal charge? Uh, if that happens, then I think a lot of people would probably say, look, these reforms by Pope Francis are for real. Uh, if it doesn't happen, if there isn't even an investigation, then I think a lot of people will say this is all sound and fury signifying nothing. We will see, but it is a fascinating turn of events. All right, secondly, today marks exactly seven days uh, before Pope Francis departs for Iraq. Now, you might think, that's not a news item. I mean, the Vatican announced that the Pope was going to visit Iraq from March 5th to March 8th some time ago. Like, why does it matter that it's just a week out? Well, here's the thing. When that announcement was made a couple of months ago, we all thought it was aspirational rather than real. None of us actually thought this trip was going to happen. 
we thought that announcing the dates was a statement about how serious the Pope was, but that it was inevitably going to have to be postponed because the Pope's desire to go was going to founder on the hard shoals of reality. I mean, think about all of the obstacles standing in the way of this trip actually happening. I mean, let's begin with the fact that it is occurring amidst a global pandemic in which events that are likely to create crowds such as, oh, I don't know, a pope showing up in a foreign country uh, are strongly discouraged by public health officials. Uh, and the nation of Iraq at the moment is currently experiencing a second surge of the COVID-19 pandemic that has led the government there, among other things, to shut down all houses of worship in the country until March 8th. That's the last day of the Pope's trip, which means that when he's there on Sunday, March 7th, Catholics can't even go to mass uh, while the Pope is in town. Uh, so, you know, you've got the COVID thing going on. Further, there's the security situation. I mean, you may remember 20 years ago, uh, St. John Paul II was supposed to go to Iraq in the year 2000. That trip had to be canceled for security reasons. Here we are 21 years later. If anything, the security situation is dramatically worse than it was back then. Uh, just recently, there have been suicide bombings in downtown Baghdad and there have been rocket attacks on Erbil, two places the Pope Francis is scheduled to go. Uh, that alone, under most circumstances, would be enough to call off a papal trip. Then, you know, there's the Pope's own issue, which is his sciatica, a nerve condition. It's not life-threatening, but it can be very annoying, very painful. Uh, recently, it's caused the Pope to call off a number of public events. Uh, so on the basis of all that, plus there's the political risk that this trip may not produce any necessarily positive outcomes for Francis. We know going in uh, that uh, the apple of his eye was a meeting he was going to have with Ayatollah al-Sistani, the most important figure in Shia Islam. Now that meeting is still on, but the Pope's desire was that Ayatollah al-Sistani would sign the document on human fraternity that the Pope signed with the leader of Sunni Islam, the Grand Imam of the Al-Azhar Mosque, uh, when he visited the United Arab Emirates. He hoped that Al-Sistani would sign too so that he would have the two branches of Islam, major branches, Sunni and Shia, committed to this. And now we are told by the Iraqi Foreign Ministry that document's not going to be signed, which takes one of the main reasons for this trip off the table. And yet, and yet, Pope Francis is going ahead. I think the only possible way to read this situation is that Pope Francis knows that going to Iraq has been a desire of popes for 20 years. I think he knows that there is no Christian community anywhere in the world that has paid a greater price in blood for the faith than the Christian community of Iraq particularly in northern Iraq, where they were actually under ISIS occupation for three years, between 2014 and, 2000 and early 2017, uh, where whole Christian villages were decimated, destroyed, gutted by ISIS. And I think, frankly, Pope Francis feels that Iraq has waited long enough for a papal, for a papal visit. I mean, he, he reportedly recently told his aides uh, that if there was no other way to get him there, he was willing to fly commercial 
uh, in order to go to Iraq, which I frankly think would have been a very interesting spectacle. Seeing Pope Francis at the check-in, like at the Delta counter in, in Fumicino Airport, right? Like trying to check in for his flight. Uh, it is not going to come to that. Uh, but it is nevertheless a remarkable thing that this trip is taking place. I will tell you this. I think this is the riskiest and most improbable papal trip of the modern era. Certainly the riskiest and most improbable papal trip I've ever seen. Watch the correct site for full coverage. All right, a tale of white hats and red ink. So the Vatican's Council for the Economy, which is a body Pope Francis created in 2014 to oversee the Vatican's financial operation, had a virtual meeting during this past week where the dismal news of the Vatican's 2020 financial performance was, was presented. Basically speaking, the outcome is the Vatican ran a $60 million deficit uh, in 2020. Now, bear in mind that the Vatican finances its operations every year from three principal revenue streams. One uh, are contributions from dioceses and other Catholic organizations around the world. Two, uh, investment income, income on its investment portfolio. Uh, and three, rental income, that is rental income from the properties it owns in Rome and throughout Italy. There are a few scattered in the rest of the world, but it's principally Rome and Italy. Now, the thing of it is, dioceses and other Catholic organizations, they've been hard hit by the coronavirus pandemic. They've had less money to give the Vatican. Stock and bond markets have been down, uh, and so that income dipped. Uh, and not only is the rental market soft just in general, but Pope Francis early on during the pandemic uh, issued a decree that rental rents were not to be increased on Vatican-owned properties because he didn't want to add to the burden that struggling renters were already facing. Now, what all that means is the Vatican came up short and came up short huge uh, in 2020 because here's the thing. That $60 million deficit, it's the product of a little bit of like sleight of hand from an accounting point of view, because for the first time this year, the Vatican decided to include the income and expenses of Peter's Pence. That's the collection that is taken every year around the world to support the activities of the Pope. In years past, it's always been considered a completely separate, a separate operation, but this year it was folded into the Vatican's general financial statement if that hadn't been done, the actual deficit this year for the Vatican would be closer to $100 million. It actually would be exactly $100 million. And when you consider that its annual budget is $375 million, what that means is the Vatican is running a deficit now that is more than one quarter of its total financial footprint every year. That is a staggering level of debt. And the thing of it is, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Because what this financial statement doesn't tell you uh, is that the Vatican also has huge unfunded pension obligations. Uh, right now, uh, the estimate is that between today, that is February 2021, and the end of the decade, that is by January 1st, 2030, something like a third of the Vatican's total workforce is going to hit 65, and they're going to expect to start collecting pension checks. Right now, the Vatican's pension fund is sorely underfunded. They've actually been raiding it for several years to make up for operational deficits. They have no idea 
uh, how they're going to meet those obligations. Now, why is the Vatican in such a financial mess? Well, the fundamental reason is that relative to its resources, the Vatican is overstaffed. That is, it has too many people working for it relative to the money it has to meet payroll obligations. Now, that has been known for decades. John Paul knew. Actually, Paul VI knew it. John Paul knew it. Benedict XVI knew it. And now Pope Francis knows it. Why has nothing been done? Well, here's the thing. Do you want to be the pope who fires people? Who tells some guy who is making 18K a year um, and it's the only way for him to support his family that all of a sudden he's out of a job? I mean, no pope who's committed to solidarity and, you know, to the, to the whole corpus of Catholic social teaching, no pope wants to be that guy uh, that starts firing people. But the practical consequence uh, is that popes have accumulated over time an unsustainable set of financial obligations. The, the only question now is whether Pope Francis is going to be the one to bite the bullet uh, and start making the hard choices that have to be made, or whether that's going to be one piece of business left for his successor. All right, next story. Does Super Mario have a Pell problem? Super Mario is a reference to Mario Draghi, the new prime minister of Italy, uh, who is now officially in charge after having won overwhelming votes of confidence uh, in the two chambers of the Italian parliament. Uh, Draghi is the former governor of the Central Bank of Europe. Uh, he is widely acclaimed as a very successful banker and economist. Uh, he's credited with having saved the euro, the common currency of the eurozone, during the eurozone crisis in the 2000s, uh, and comes in with a great deal of goodwill from the Vatican as well. He's the product of Jesuit education. He's a member of the Pontifical Academy for Social Sciences. Lots of people believe that Pope Francis and Draghi are sort of a match made in heaven. But here's the thing. Remember back to 2014 when Pope Francis launched his financial reform. Who did he appoint to run it? Australian Cardinal George Pell, because both were reformers. Both were dissatisfied with the way that money had been managed at the Vatican up to that point. Uh, and Pope Francis felt that Pell was exactly the kind of strong personality he needed to get things right. It fell apart very quickly, and this was well before sexual abuse charges against Pell in his native Australia, of which he was eventually vindicated. This all happened before. Pope and, and uh, the Pope and Pell fell out. The Pope started trimming Pell's wings, and why? Well, because Pell believed in 21st century global free market capitalism. Uh, his version of reform meant that the Vatican needed to cut expenses. It needed to maximize income. Uh, it should have a centralized investment fund that would have greater leverage uh, with markets around the world that would increase the amount of money that the Vatican was making. In other words, he was sort of a doyen of international high finance. Pope Francis, legendarily a champion of the underdog, a champion of the little guy, deeply skeptical of global free market capitalism. He's called it an economy that kills. These were just not compatible visions, ultimately. In other words, the Pope and Pell were clear about what they were against. They just didn't agree on what they were for. Uh, and as things play out, it may well be the same thing with Draghi. Bear in mind, this is a former central banker 
who believes in limited public spending, who believes in stock market growth, he believes in low inflation, and is willing to tolerate some degree of unemployment as the cost of making all that happen. Very different from Pope Francis's vision. Now, you might ask yourself as an American, a Canadian, a German, whatever, uh, why does it matter what relationship the Pope has with the Prime Minister of Italy? Well, bear in mind, Italy is the Pope's own backyard. And bishops and other Catholic decision makers around the world look at what happens in Italy as an indication of the Pope's global interests and priorities. So if the relationship between the Pope and the Italian prime minister sours, that could have global consequences. In other words, if Italy sneezes, the rest of the Catholic world catches cold. All right, finally, the Pope comes calling. Last Saturday, Pope Francis made an unannounced and private visit to the home of a nonagenarian female Italian Holocaust survivor by the name of Edith Brooke, who was also a well-known poet. Uh, she survived a series of Nazi death camps, went on to write some very acclaimed poetry. Uh, she's a renowned public figure in Rome and in Italy. Uh, and Pope Francis essentially showed up at her door uh, sat down, had tea for an hour, uh, talked with her for a while, uh, and then went back to the Vatican. Now, you might think of that as just a cute papal outing, but bear in mind, this happened just days after another elderly female Holocaust survivor here in Italy, uh, Luciana Segre, went on national television uh, because she was getting the coronavirus vaccine and she wanted to encourage other elderly Italians to do the same thing. And her appearance on TV triggered a spate of vicious anti-Semitic commentary on social media and so on uh, in Italy. Uh, and, and this was going on virtually unchecked. Uh, and in that context, the Pope's decision to go visit an elderly female Holocaust survivor to show his solidarity with those who had suffered the horrors of the Holocaust, uh, it obviously had enormous significance, particularly here in Rome. Let's not forget that Francis may be the governor of the global Catholic Church, but he is also the Bishop of Rome. Uh, and this was him trying to set a moral tone in the city for which he has primary responsibility. It wasn't an act of governance. It wasn't an, an appointment to some high-profile Vatican gig. Uh, it wasn't some critical financial decision. But it was the Pope trying to strike a moral tone that has the possibility to change the civic discourse in the city and the country uh, for which he is above all responsible uh, and it has to be said uh, that this was Francis. I mean, Francis is a genius when it comes to gestures. Uh, he has command of the symbolic repertoire of the papal office. Uh, and this was him deploying those communicative tools in his toolbox to maximum effect. It was a remarkable, remarkable moment. All right, listen, if you like what you were hearing here on last week in the church. If you value uh, this opportunity to, to kind of do a quick traipse through the big Catholic stories of the past week, I want you to do me a favor, and it's important. Please give us a like uh, on whatever platform you're watching this show. 
give us a share using whatever social media channels that you are most familiar with. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, go forth and make disciples of all the nations. Spread the gospel uh, of last week in the church because we want to reach as many people as we possibly can. Uh, I also want to remind you, again, you can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. When you go on the site, you will find ways to help us financially. If you can do that, we would be deeply appreciative. We will be back here next Friday. And remember, next Friday will be day one of Pope Francis's historic visit to the nation of Iraq. We will have full coverage of that and so much more, so please be with us. In the meantime, over the next seven days, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week. We will see you again very, very soon.